In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. You can take a deep sigh of relief. I'm not preaching on that parable. <laughs> parable of the shrewd manager. It's actually really fascinating, but um, it becomes a lecture, not a sermon. Um, Instead, I want to start this morning with uh, a newsletter that I received from an academic who studies parenting in, um, in Canada. And she confessed, her name's Catherine Jezer Morton, and she confessed that her oldest son was entering into seventh grade. And so the time had come for her to go and buy a new SIM card for her husband's old iPhone and hand it to the seventh grader. <clears throat> she writes, as milestones go, this one is not my fave. I hate my phone, and I use it constantly. Unless my son turns out to be an unusual person, he will probably grow to do the same. Most people would insist that all of this is normal, that kids need phones, that I need to relax, but I'm not relaxed. My phone has amplified my worst qualities and dulled my best ones. It has also done this to almost every other person I know. She then opines, saying that she feels her role as a parent is not to provide a smart connection to all things internet, but in fact to prolong the time of their lives in which they are not standing at the beck and call of a device. Okay, that is another, that's sort of heavy in and of itself. But this is not a sermon to make you feel even more guilty about your screen time. Um, though I will say there is a whole lot of hand-wringing, especially among parents of children my age, about when the kids should get the phone first. Um, and the reason it is so uh, full of um, anxiety is because phones produce anxiety in parents as well. We know that this is, these things have not really been avenues or tools for an increase in peace but in fact a fraying of one's nerves. And yet, these words are what came to mind this morning in reading, uh, in hearing Paul's words in Timothy about Jesus Christ giving himself as a ransom for all. Now you ransom someone or something that is in captivity. Someone who's been kidnapped, the kidnappers demand a ransom in order for the person to go free. And if, if you want to understand Jesus Christ, if you want to understand most of the New Testament, you have to sort of wrap your mind around the fact that he saw himself as someone who had come to set captives free. <clears throat> Paul talks repeatedly about him pay, giving himself as a ransom for many, for those who are in captivity. Now, a modern vision of captivity, there's real captivity in our world, of course, or physical captivity, but a, a bunch of people staring at their phones uh, is a different type of captivity, is it not? And I watch as my sixth grader and all of his friends rush headlong to their own captivity uh, at the hands of Tim Cook or whoever, you know, Jeff Bezos. I don't know who is our captor exactly, but I know that we're all sort of in captivity. Uh, we don't like to think of ourselves this way, do we? We don't like to think of ourselves as imprisoned or bound. We're, we're Americans. We are the captains of our own ships. Don't tread on me. I do what I want when I want. 
I am not in chains. In fact, I am the champion of those who are in chains. And yet, in the Bible's view, you're a captive. You're a captive to, maybe if it's not your phone, you're, you're a captive to what your phone delivers to you, which is affirmation, love, distraction from unpleasantness. Perhaps you're simply captive to the circumstances into which you were born. I'm captive to this family, in this place, in this time, with those siblings. Right? I have inherited vast amounts of trouble, and I'm captive to it. I cannot will my way. I didn't choose it, and I can't will my way out of it. Or perhaps it's something else. You know, I think a lot of the the anxiety around inflation usually has to feel like the feeling of being captive to sort of a, a, roller, a runaway train. People captive to their finances, captive to the economy. We're also captive to our bodies, right? Captive to illness. Captive to, I mean, I'm personally, I'm captive to hunger. I'm, the 11 o'clock service is hard for me. <laughs> I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat. And I've been forbidden from coming home hungry. By the way, my wife's like, do not pass go. Go straight to get food before you come home. I don't want to deal with a hungry Dave. <laughs> I am captive to hunger. But, uh, you know, I joke, um, our rector, who's not here this morning, I can poke fun at him a little bit. He's always talking about how he needs to go to sleep right at 9 o'clock. Don't call him afterwards because he goes to bed. He needs his full eight hours every night. And, you know, I love Paul, but he is captive to that bed. You know, he's just as human as the rest of us. He is a captive to sleep. Parents of young under, and children understand just how captive we are to our bodies. So you watch meltdowns occur when kids are hungry or tired. But let's go a little deeper. What about within yourself? What are you captive to? I would say our intellects are captive to our emotions. That's not a popular thing to say. We like to think, again, we're the captains of our own ship. We're reasonable, rational beings making you know, informed decisions, and we're not guided by instinct and, and impulse and rage and you know, pleasure. But the evidence is actually to the contrary. The heart rules over the head and always have. I learned this when I was... Uh, I've learned it every day, but I was in my 20s when I first went into weekly talk therapy. Um, a new boss had gotten, had been hired above me, and it got under my skin, and I couldn't really understand why. The man was very courteous, very kind, honest, clear. He wasn't a micromanager. And yet I started to show up late to our meetings, screen phone calls, even badmouth his leadership to other employees. This was uncharacteristic and fairly troubling, but it was occupying me. Uh, I told myself that my reservations were entirely ideological and intellectual. I didn't like what this man thought about X, Y, or Z related to our work. But as I spoke with a therapist, I realized that that was mostly a smokescreen. Something deeper was going on, and it was related to my heart. This guy had triggered a deep insecurity in me about being dethroned. I'm a middle child, after all. You know, we, don't, we were, have all been dethroned. I was doing everything I could to hold on to power and overreacting to what I perceived as a threat, and I was making everyone, including myself, around me uh, miserable in the process. But I couldn't see that. I th it was much more safe to say, oh, I disagree with him on ideological grounds, theological, 
No, I was hurt. So the mind is captive to the emotions. But there are other ways to be captive internally. Have you ever met someone who's captive to anger? Something happened to them when they were 25, and it might have been terrible, but it has held them captive ever since. Captive to sadness, to depression. Captive to greed, money. Captive to addiction. Captive to grief. Captive to self. Captive to sin. That's the biblical language here. Now, I want to say something slightly controversial. I believe, and I just wrote a whole book about it, that understanding people as captive, understanding yourself as a person in captivity is a key to love. You cannot love another person, or you will not love another person, until you realize that they are just as bound up by their limitations as you are. If you do not take into account that people are in captivity to external and internal things, you will beat your head against the wall when they don't do what you tell them to do, when they don't behave the way you've asked them to a hundred times. But more than that, you will judge them, and you will judge yourself mercilessly. What does the opposite of this look like? Where, how does an understanding of person being in captivity produce love? Well, Mary Lou gave us an amazing example about six years ago, so good that I just ripped it wholesale and put it into that book I'm telling you about. It's from another book, a memoir called My Dead Parents, in which a young woman named Anya Yurchurchin, I'm murdering that name, she gives a stunning example of, she's a woman who both of her parents died. One when she, her father died when she was 16 and her mother when she was 32. And her initial response to their deaths was uh, relief. She had experienced her father as cold and mean and her mother as ineffectual and aloof. Their disdain and contempt for each other was on display throughout her entire life and she blamed her anxiety and her low self-esteem on them. So Anya was taken aback when, while cleaning out her mother's house, she found a box of the most passionate love letters between her mother and her father. Her father had written, whenever I leave you, there is an emptiness inside me, a true aching of the heart. And her mother had responded in kind. The vulnerability shocked Anya. Who were these people? She decided she had to find out, and so she went first to visit the Pennsylvania neighborhood where her mother grew up. And what she discovered was that her mother's childhood had been heartbreaking, filled with the worst type of abandonment and abuse. She then flew to her father's ancestral home in Ukraine, and much to her surprise, she discovered that he was regarded there as something of a hero. After the collapse of the USSR, he had returned early and often to help rebuild the devastated town. What she had thought of as her father's absenteeism turned out to be a devotion to those he had left behind. And moreover, she discovered that before she was born, her parents had lost an infant son to pneumonia. She writes, devastating as it was, this information was a gift, shining a light into the murky corners of my childhood. My father policed my behavior so intensely, not because he was a dictator, but because he was terrified of losing another child. He was captive to that sort of fear. His anger was misplaced grief. My mother wasn't weak. She'd had to be unimaginably strong to survive her upbringing. I was the product of complicated people who'd done the best they could. Today, I am proud to be their daughter, 
a person who's replaced pity with compassion. That compassion opened the door to the emotional prison where I'd long kept my parents. And in turn, it freed me. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying that she realized that her parents were just as captive to their pasts as she was to her own. And that did not increase her disdain or distance, but it increased her, 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 her love and sympathy for them. Even though she had been forced to bear the brunt of their captivity in many ways. But the acknowledgement that they shared that condition was a step toward freedom. And this is a beautiful step, but it's only a step. We need something more. We need something more than just awareness of our captivity in order to be freed. What we need, the Bible tells us, is we need a rescue. And we need a ransom, a mediator, a go-between, a savior, someone like Jesus, but also someone like Rick Stanton. You know who Rick Stanton is? Rick Stanton was one of the divers who helped save those, that, those Thai uh, soccer team boys who were stranded in the cave a few years ago. Do you remember this story? There was a documentary made about it called The Rescue, which is on Disney, I think. It's a National Geographic thing. And I watched this a couple of weeks ago, and it is, I just want to watch it again and again and again. It's the most amazing thing. These boys uh, were wandering around this cave and rising water levels. I mean, and it, it rains there. You know, this is the rain season, monsoon season. It trapped them in a cave two and a half kilometers inside this cave. They could not get out. And they were stuck there for 18 days, completely captive to the water, to the elements. And somehow, someone had the wherewithal, a guy who was a friend of so-and-so and had just an Englishman who was there on, on hand, he decided he was going to call a bunch of hobbyists in Great Britain who were men who spent their Saturdays avoiding people by their own admission and going into caves for underwater diving. This is a bunch of very strange men, okay? <laughs> Like, you think the men with all their spandex and the bikes are strange. Like, these guys are much, much stranger. But they're clearly doing this every single weekend, and so they get a call, and they fly across the globe, and all before you know it, these sort of reedy, nerdy English guys are, 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 are doing what Navy SEALs can't. And they've gone, uh, uh, they've had to stretch lines a kilometer under all of these passageways in order to reach the stranded boys who they find on day 10. And then they hatch a plot to take the boys one by one on ropes. The only way they can do it, the water's so cold they have to put wetsuits on them, and it's so dangerous that they have to sedate the boys, each one of them, and, and hook them up to oxygen and drag them a kilometer underneath extremely, it's, watch this documentary, okay? Don't take my, it's incredible. But the reason I talk about it is that they thought they were gonna save a couple, hopefully. And they saved every single one. They got them all out. And yet there was a price to this. There was a cost, there was a ransom paid, and it was the life of a young volunteer, a former Navy SEAL, a Taiwanese man named Suman Kunan. And now there are statues erected in his honor. He died, he drowned while trying to bring them oxygen tanks. And his death 
is, is an indicator. It's not only a ransom, it's an indicator of the impossible circumstances. It elevates, it confirms just how difficult this was, how miraculous it was, and it also indicates that other divers, otherworldly dedication and courage in going to get those boys. The cost. And so then you have these parents on the other side, they're, they're talking to these English divers and they can't, it's all through translators and the parents are saying, on behalf of all the parents, I want to thank you. It's like our children have died and been given another life. And people around the world, this captivated them because it was so extraordinary, but also because anyone, I defy you not to find a rescue of that magnitude, incredibly moving and profound. On some level that's deeper than our conscious life, we know what it is to be captive. And we know what it is to yearn for rescue. Now these boys have been rescued in the same way, I would say, that Christians believe that Jesus ransoms captives like you and me. Those boys are free, and yet the trauma will last, it will linger. And what they've done is they've spent like the last five years going, basically going on talk shows and telling and retelling this amazing story and thanking these strange English guys and telling this story. And everyone who hears it just gets so excited because we know how much we would love a rescue like that. These, these, these boys who contribute nothing to their rescue except their bodies. This lesson for you today is that Jesus Christ is like Rick Stanton and those divers. Come to save those who cannot save themselves. Come to drag you to new life. And while trauma and captivity may follow you around, it is merely the echo of something that is no longer true. And so, my friends, this morning, it is not up to you to free yourself from captivity. That is God's chief job description. This God who gave himself as a ransom, not for most, but for all, which includes you. Amen.